It's go time. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham and Pat Mooney. And tonight we've got a lot to discuss. I guess we always do. The biggest thing I think coming out of the week that was, we can start with the positive. Andrew Harris hits the 10,000 yard plateau rushing, most by a Canadian. He does that on a play where he almost scores a touchdown. Big week for Andrew Harris, another milestone for him. We saw him creeping past Milt Stiegel a couple of weeks ago or last week for the yards from scrimmage moving into the top five. And now top five all-time rushing and number one for Canadian. And breaking that 10,000-yard barrier is quite the mark for Andrew Harris. He had an outstanding week, and he did it uh, not 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 just that week. That week certainly was outstanding, but but it's a real milestone. He's accomplished this in an era where CFL teams aren't running as much as they used to. In previous, it looks like 1990s to 2000, they averaged about 42 rushes a game. In Andrew Harris's time, teams are now averaging 38 rushes a game, and that compares back to when George Reed and Johnny Bright were playing. It was 60 rushing attempts. So. When you put it in perspective in the era, that's a pretty impressive running back. Fewer opportunities, and he's making the most of them. And uh, we'll get into the stats from the Rough Riders versus the Argonauts, but Andrew Harris had more uh, yards from scrimmage than the Rough Riders did on the afternoon Sunday. One thing I'll say about Andrew Harris is his running style. He is a power running back. He hits that line of scrimmage with everything he's got, every single carry. And that is what is what has propelled him. And he's always good at finding the hole and scratching and clawing for those extra couple of yards. And it adds up over time. And that's why we're at the mark that he's sitting at now. I don't know if you want to say this out loud, but when he sees green, he, there's another level that he uh, gets to. And Saskatchewan felt it again. It, he's been through enough Labor Day contests against the Rough Riders when he was with the Blue Bombers. He gets jacked up to be in that mosaic stadium and that atmosphere. And it was the Andrew Harris of old. Let's face it. He went off in the third and especially the fourth quarter when the Argonauts needed him the most. That was what we saw when he played with Winnipeg. He would move the team down the field. Now, let's get to the other side of the equation. How involved must the booth be when it comes to calls made on the field and this refers to the game between Montreal and Ottawa and this all happens in the final 45 seconds of the game roughly where Mike Moore gets flagged on the field for rough play twice and twice the command center comes in and says no it wasn't a high hit this is not an applicable penalty situation. I don't want to see the booth that involved in the fact that they're slowing the pace of the game down. And I'm sure if you were following on Twitter, you saw a lot of people were kind of ticked off in terms of the, the pace of the game. I think, like other times in the game, this should still be one that the coach maybe has to challenge as opposed to the booth calling it down. I would agree with that, Pat. And the purpose of the command center, in my mind, is to get calls right, but also to promote player safety. So 
if the referees and the officials on the field see something that they think is rough play, I have a hard time agreeing that the command center should be able to overturn that. If we're looking at a high hit that wasn't called, that's the other side of the coin. And that's the side that the command center should be stepping in and saying, hey, that was leading with the helmet. That was a headshot, whatever the case may be. But to overturn it the other way does nothing as far as promoting player safety. The booth, I think, in this case, really overstepped. They were not consulted, from what I could gather, by the officiating crew on the field. Andre Pru seemed to be as surprised as anyone when he would get these notifications that the booth was reviewing the play. And ultimately, the booth is supposed to correct egregious errors, let's put it that way. Uh, Whether or not a player stepped out of bounds, whether or not they crossed the goal line, whether or not it was a fumble, whether or not it was a catch or a no catch, that's kind of where the booth needs to be. But when it comes to interpretation, when a player is tackling another player, you've got an official or two standing right there looking at the situation. I agree with you, Heath. If they miss it and a player gets away with something, then the booth can step in and say, look, that's a 15-yard foul because that was dangerous play. But to have an official call a high hit and then the booth say, no, that's not the case. I mean, you could say, well, look, they're supposed to get everything right. But to what point and to what end? There has to be sort of a, a limit built in that they leave well enough alone. The safety of the players is paramount if you want to reinterpret a call Every week, I think the refs do have to be evaluated on how they've done. And when you make a call and and the game where you're making a call on a high hit and then you have someone overturn it right in the game, I wonder what that does to a sense of efficacy that the referee has. You're on the field, you're you're playing in a fast-paced game, you're making a judgment call. If it's wrong, I think the league needs to review that not in front of all the viewers, but instead to say, okay, let's talk to all of our referees, let's set the guidelines on what what enables a high hit, so we get some more clarity in that sense by having a private conversation with the referees so that they can start to make those changes as opposed to stopping the game, slowing it down, and calling it out right in the middle. I, I felt sorry for Andre Pru and his crew of referees at that point when the booth keeps overruling. Well, And what about the Ottawa Red Blacks at the time? William Powell thinks that he's been uh, afflicted by the penalty, and so he's thinking, okay, we've got a first down, we're going to be down around the 10-yard line. Um, the officiating crew is ready to mark it off and all of a sudden, nope, that's not going to be the case. And then Caleb Evans, and we're supposed to be protecting quarterbacks in this league. That's job number one, it seems. And yet Caleb Evans gets spun around, pulled down. Probably Mike Moore didn't in either case break a rule, but he was so close, especially on the Caleb Evans play, that I think at some point you have to say, look, that's too close to really pull back from. We have to make that call to keep them away from those types of temptations. It really killed any momentum that the Ottawa Red Blacks had as well. We saw it come right down to the wire in this game. They had a chance late, but these were just setbacks and awkward pauses in the game that didn't promote that excitement. One of the things that the CFL really likes to talk about is no lead is safe. The last three minutes is a mini game in, in and of itself. And unfortunately, this one was probably one of the least exciting mini games within a game because of the, the pauses and the command center intervening. 
it took the stuffing right out of the drama. And now, was it an overambitious person in the booth? Maybe there has to be more guidance given. Ultimately, the booth is there as a safety net. The only time it needs to be proactive is when it comes to player safety. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders have teased a new logo. They applied for a trademark last week. And immediately upon some blowback, the team said, well, they had no plans of changing any of the logos worn on the field and the corporate logo that we see coming into the stadium. Did the Rough Riders float this out there to get reaction and to see what was what? Or are they actually planning a move to a new look? Honestly, I hope not. I think teams need to stick very close to the uh, the logos they've had. We, we saw Montreal change theirs last year, and I really do like the new Montreal logo, to be honest. But when you have a team with the tradition of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, I don't, I don't think it's a proactive move to change it totally. We've seen the logo change in Saskatchewan with some minor changes in colors and schemes, but keeping the same regular logo... In recent years, we can go back in the history, and certainly Saskatchewan had different logos, but I don't ever see a team like the Montreal Canadiens changing their logo. Why would you? It's recognizable, and Saskatchewan, I think, has that same brand. They've got a recognizable logo, a strong brand, and and to me, you don't mess with something that doesn't need to be fixed. The Rough Riders brought uh, a unique logo onto their helmets in 1966. They wore that one pretty much untouched until 1984, and that's the one that you see on Labor Day when they play the Blue Bombers. That's their retro look. Then in 1985, for the 75th anniversary of the team, they borrowed from the Jacksonville Bulls and the wraparound logo that they wore for another 20 years, and then they have basically cut the back end off that logo, shrunk it down, and kept that look from there on, and that's the one that you see slightly modified, the gray is eliminated, that you see on the field today. The new logo it, it, it is a marked change from both looks. With sports marketing, you want to stay current. I, I've talked in the past about some of the cartoonish logos in sports in the 80s and 90s, but the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are by far the leading sellers of CFL merchandise in this country. I don't know necessarily that it was a time needed to refresh the logo for the Rough Riders. It certainly is a more modern look, the the new logo that's been tweeted out. It may be worthwhile to test the waters a little bit, maybe having a a, a night or two where they run that out there and see how it goes. But all in all, it might be a new Coke situation where the blowback from the fans is such that they aren't going to be able to go forward with that logo. They've gone through the process of trademarking it, so it's going to become theirs. Once that process is complete, you don't usually go down that road unless you have some plans for the design. Personally, having seen it now, it's only been a grayscale that we've seen of it, but I don't mind it. It is a little bit more edgy. I would like to see the circular Saskatchewan Rough Riders eliminated if they do put the S on the helmet, just have the S with the the stylizing in the middle of it. I think it would be okay. It's just got a much more hardened edge than what we've seen from the team up to this point. One other way you can roll some of these out is different places like possibly on on shoulders in the on the uniforms or something like that where it's not painted on the midfield 
logo on the field and it's not on the helmets, but you're, you're slowly introducing the change. And if there's momentum behind it, it's something that you can perhaps expand on further down the road. Unless they use it as an alternate logo, that's something that they could do. I don't know when and where that would apply. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers, of course, had their Star Blanket W that they used and they're going to use again this year. That was a great homage to reconciliation. We saw Hamilton's steel gray uniforms. Pajamas. We saw last last year the Edmonton Elks with the antlered helmets that are going to be around for a couple of special occasions this year, but they have gone back to the double E logo famous in Edmonton. So it's not unheard of. It just has to go the right way and be embraced by the fans because at the end of the day what the Rough Riders are hoping to do is sell more merchandise with that new logo. I can tell you I won't be buying one. I want to see it in full color and then I'll make a decision on it. I don't know that I'm going to be necessarily absolutely opposed to it. I hated the Jacksonville Bulls homage logo that they wore for quite a few years up until about what 2007. It was just oh no, you couldn't hardly see it from the stands because the silver wrapped around the white S on silver. There was no contrast. We'll see how it plays out. Sometimes you get an initial uh, rebuttal because people don't like change. But then once they, as Heath said, if it shows up somewhere and then you slowly start a comfort with it, it may make its way on. Willie Jefferson has moved into a very select group. Heath, would you like to elaborate? Since they started keeping some of these stats, Willie Jefferson is the only CFL player that has recorded 50 career sacks and 50 career pass knockdowns. And he reached that mark with three knockdowns in the last game. Uh, A pretty phenomenal stat line for him. He's not near the top of the leaderboard as far as all-time career sacks, yet he may someday get there. But one of the things that makes him truly valuable on that Winnipeg defensive line is that wingspan and his ability, if he can't get to the quarterback, to get those arms up and start batting passes down. The 50-50 club is highly impressive, but so is the fact that he's the only lineman to ever lead the CFL in pass knockdowns, which once again this year, he's leading the league with seven so far. That's, that's impressive. Generally, that falls to a linebacker or a defensive back. He's a person that needs to be appreciated for what he is and how he plays the game because he is one person that you have to scheme around all the time, depending on what he wants to do your offense is going to be impacted. And if you read it wrong, he's going to burn you. If you think he's going to drop back and knock a pass down, all of a sudden he beats the offensive lineman and he's in the quarterback's face or vice versa. You think he's engaged with the lineman, all of a sudden he drops back and has an interception. He's he's an incredible athlete and the CFL is, is lucky to have him. He's a, a star in this league and we'll see how far this club climbs as he goes 60, 60, 70, 70. By the time he's all said and done, we'll, we'll see where he gets to. The Rough Riders had several players come down with COVID, and the game that was originally to be played on the 23rd of July was moved to the 24th of July of 2022, and 24 hours later. One of the things that was brought up was why weren't the players that were under protocol numerated? Why weren't they mentioned? Because... Let's face it, as a league that wants to depend on betting, 
that's information a better need needs to know. And I think in Canadian law, where this gets tricky is that right to privacy that the players have, right? It did identify the players with illness, but not necessarily with COVID. So, I mean, illness could be any range of things. Was most likely COVID, but you can't come right out and say this individual had COVID. And I think that's privacy law. It seems to me it was handled fairly well. We did push the game back one day to allow some of these players to get back into the lineup. We we know there was some key players that were unable to suit up. As far as the betting portion goes, as long as they are not listed in the lineup come game day, I think you have the opportunity to make the decisions on how you're wagering on this game. If you want to jump in ahead of time, based on the information you know by Tuesday or Wednesday, you're taking more of a risk than you are if you're waiting until that lineup and, and that game time decision. Very valid point. And I think we could see something like that happen again this week with Calgary, who's just identified that some of their players currently have COVID. Although we know who was away, we're not identified at this point which players actually have COVID once again. So betters may be jumping on that a bit early with the possibility that Calgary may be running a bit short in their game against Winnipeg. Right now, I, I think prognostications are close to a 50-50 pick but with Calgary having some key players out, that would certainly impact this game. It does play into how you bet a game. Second down. Four games in the CFL last week. Let's start with the game that got everybody talking for maybe the wrong reasons, but let's face it, this was a fantastic football game. Montreal hold on and win 40-33 to over the Ottawa Red Blacks. Ottawa continuing their winless ways. The Alouettes winning for the first time on the road. Over 900 yards of offense in that game. And this was with a little bit of a slow start. It was 8-0 Ottawa after the first quarter. And then the game just kind of gained momentum. It was a phenomenal second half. And came right down to the wire again, as we talked about a little bit of command center intervention late in this game. If not for a dropped Darvin Adams catch in the end zone, this one probably would have gone to overtime. Ottawa did everything they could to stay in this one, hang with Montreal, had an opportunity late to tie it up, and it just didn't quite work out for them. Nathaniel Bahar had a fumble too that Micah Awe picked up and ran about 75 yards down the field and tackled at the two-yard line, Montreal scoring subsequently, that also flipped the field, flipped the score. It was just a game of heart-rendering moments. Just had everything you wanted in a football game. Trevor Harris, 25-31 for 341 yards, two touchdowns. Caleb Evans goes 25-40 for 297 yards and a touchdown. No picks. Nick Arbuckle gets on the field and is one for one, 47 yards. I love when you see this kind of offensive output in a game. Uh, to have a game finish like it did when Darvin Adams effectively seemed to spike that ball down to the ground, uh, what a heartbreaker because it was such an exciting game. It's one of those ones I would have loved to see go into overtime. Did Caleb Evans do enough to get another start in Ottawa? That's the question I have. We, we did see Nick Arbuckle come in and complete a 47-yard pass to Jalen Acklin. Caleb Evans threw almost 300 yards, no interceptions, which was a big night for him. But where does this leave the Ottawa Red Blacks in that starting quarterback situation? My question is, did Caleb Evans do anything that would 
tell you that he should not be the starting quarterback because if he did not, then he is the starting quarterback for this game coming up. They've still got a goose egg in the win column. But do you put it on him? It's interesting when when his coach was asked if he has earned the start, he was non-committal. So here you've got a coach that's going to play the competition edge between the two quarterbacks and make a decision to say, what are we going to do? And I think that's a good thing for, for quarterbacks to have some form of competition. But I do think Caleb Evans should be starting the next game based on his performance. He didn't cost them the game in Hamilton either. And all he did was hit Darvin Adams right in the hands in the end zone. So... <laughs> Exactly. So does Darvin Adams get benched because he dropped that ball in the end zone or does he get kept on the field because he had such a great receiving day otherwise? That's what I want to get to. With nine catches and 118 yards, I don't think that Adams is going to be on the bench for that one drop. But people will point to Evans and say, you lost the game. Well, he put up 33. That's not bad. Should win with that. Next game, probably the game that I thought would be the most lopsided turned out to be a real defensive struggle. The BC Lions beat the Hamilton Tiger Cats 17-12, to and it came down to a final play Hail Mary that almost worked for the Tiger Cats, where they deflected the football. And TJ Lee, if he doesn't put up that left hand and get a hold of that football, there are two Tiger Cats behind him that could score this was a close game you're right it was one that we probably anticipated being a multi-score win for the bc lions at home against a struggling tiger cats team nathan Rourke had a decent night numbers wise 250 yards passing two touchdowns but also two interceptions and that was what took some of those points off the board for the lions if they converted on some of those instead of turning the ball over this game's not as close as the final score dictates Dane Evans had a decent day at the office as well. 26 of 38 for 297. 297 ringing a bell. That's what Caleb Evans threw. Nathan Rourke, as you said, 22 of 30 for 250 and the two touchdowns. Lucky Whitehead, eight receptions for 111 yards and a touchdown. Hamilton, time zones aside, I thought really gave a good account of themselves. Another big night by Lucky Whitehead, as you mentioned. If you're ranking receivers in the CFL right now, where do you rank Lucky Whitehead and why is he number one? Lucky Whitehead maybe hasn't been as explosive as he had been in past years. The defense has to be watching him because at any moment he can break the field and the game wide open. So I, I do think that alone makes him one of the primary receivers in the league. I don't see that this year with someone like Brandon Banks in the same way. You know, here's a guy who consistently has been ranked one of the best receivers but hasn't really come through. One thing that continues to impress me with Lucky Whitehead is we know he's got speed to burn and he is a deep threat, but he has also developed into a fantastic possession receiver for the BC Lions, often catching those five and 10 yard out patterns to keep a drive alive. So there's a lot to his game. And with a young quarterback like Nathan Rourke, having somebody that is that multifaceted on offense is a huge weapon. You're right. You do see that in this game with 14 yards after catch as compared to previous years when he'd put up 160 were on a long bomb pass. Uh, he has developed a tremendous amount, and I think that's another reason why he's got to be considered one of the top receivers. Friday night, Winnipeg and Edmonton. If I come at you with the stat 25 of 42 for 270 versus 7 for 16 for 188, 
which of those stats is the winning quarterbacks? A, a stat sheet shocker on Friday night, but as Winnipeg has been doing all season, just win, baby. Zach Calera, 7 of 16, four completions in the first half. He had an interception and two touchdowns. Dalton Schoen is quickly becoming the front runner for CFL Rookie of the Year as well. He had a, a huge night. As, well, I guess when there's only seven completions, uh, having four of those is a huge night. 146 yards and a touchdown, including an 81-yard play. So another solid night for that rookie receiver. Absolutely. What what shocked me about this game is Edmonton did seem to be able to move the ball. They controlled the clock for most of the game, but Winnipeg had that quick strike offense where they were able to make some some long passes and get a touchdown quickly, where Edmonton just seemed to march methodically down the field. And at the end of the day, you would think, looking at these stats almost across the board, that Edmonton should have won this game. Edmonton had 357 yards of offense to Winnipeg's 274. Time of possession, 37-14 to 22-46. But when push came to shove in that fourth quarter, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers put together a nine-and-a-half-minute drive to put that game out of reach against Edmonton. So once again, it's not pretty, but that 7-0 and on the top of the standings is looking pretty good right now, and they are just finding ways to win. A huge contacting the kicker call against Edmonton in that drive. Winnipeg was stopped and punted, but unfortunately for Edmonton, they ran into the kicker and that gave Winnipeg the ball back and they continued on that drive and they were methodical. They did unbelievable work to not only move down the field, but kill the clock. It was a very blatant contacting the kicker call as well. So it wasn't one of these ones that was questionable or command center intervening. Mark Leggio did not have time to get that foot down on the ground before he got absolutely blown up by the defensive lineman. So the the right call in this one and a momentum killer for the Edmonton Elks, they were going to get the ball back with a chance to do something and, and Winnipeg snuffed that out and ran the clock down. With the 24 to 10 win, the in 1960, they won their first 10 games of the season. That 10-win start in a row is very much in their windshield. They can see it. And they do, as you mentioned earlier, Heath, just seem to find a way to win, whether it's the offense coming on in this game like they did or the defense stepping up and stopping. I think I would have been interested to see what would have happened had the punt uh, roughing the kicker not occurred. I think the defense probably would have stepped up. This is a championship caliber team and they keep finding ways to do what they need to do to pull out the wins. We talked about how much they seem to have struggled in this game, but at the end of the day, they won by two touchdowns. Sunday, the Toronto Argonauts come into Regina and despite doing everything they could to sabotage themselves, finally assert their will in the fourth quarter, roll up 17 points and defeat the Rough Riders 31-21. to McLeod Bethel-Thompson, 30 of 38 for 336, two touchdowns, one pick. Jake Dolagala, first start for him ever in the Canadian Football League, 13 of 28 for 131, a touchdown and an interception. If there's one criticism that could be leveled against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, it was that Jason Moss got very conservative very quick in this football game with his play calling. I don't disagree with that at all, particularly when I take a look at some of the two-point converts as well. When you're throwing the ball laterally on these plays with a team like Toronto who can step up and close that so well, it just doesn't seem to be the kind of play calling that you want to 
move the ball down. You've got to push it forward three, four yards. Why don't you move downfield, look for a slant? But it, it wasn't in the cards. A, a tactical error for the Toronto Argonauts and Ryan Dinwiddie that almost cost them in this game was going for a really long field goal at the end of the first half and having it returned 112 yards by Mario Alford for a, a touchdown. We knew with a quarterback having his first start, points were potentially going to be hard to come by for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Maybe not the wisest decision for Dinwiddie to go for that long field goal. Toronto with 496 yards of offense, Saskatchewan just a 174. Put it in perspective, Andrew Harris, between his running and pass receiving, had 188 yards of offense for the Argonauts, 14 more than the Rough Riders' entire squad on offense could provide. He was a workhorse, as we spoke to earlier, and, and uh, when he gets going like this, you start to wonder if he's going to be able to replicate the success he had in Winnipeg. This game certainly appeared like Toronto's getting on cue with using Harris in the way that when the ball is in his hands, you know he's going to carry people three or four extra yards and get those tough yards, and we saw it time after time in this game. Curly Gittins Jr., eight receptions on eight attempts, 152 yards, a long of 70 for a touchdown. Keon Schaefer-Baker, zero receptions on eight targets. Disappointing night for, for Schaefer-Baker, but the one who did impress me was Tevin Jones. He had one heck of a game. Obviously, he's got a bit of a connection with Dalagala, and uh, he had five catches for 67 yards. I, I was quite impressed with the young receiver here, and Schaefer-Baker was the one that you would expect would get lots of balls but was unable to convert on any of them. We often see when a third-string quarterback or a practice roster quarterback is getting his first start. A player that has spent some time on the practice roster with him seems to have developed that comfort level, and they often have a big night, and, and that's what we kind of saw with Tevin Jones here stepping up and, and getting those first team reps. They were shorthanded at receiver, and you've got to find some new weapons, and, and we'll see what develops with Tevin Jones moving forward, but he certainly didn't look out of place out there working with Dola Gala. Mario Alford had a game where at halftime he looked like he was going to be the game hero and at full time he wasn't so much. A fumble on the final kickoff that was returned for a score by the Argonauts. Enoch Penny Laria, who benefited from the work from Robbie Smith, gets the touchdown, puts the game out of the reach of the Rough Riders. At that moment it was 24-21, to Saskatchewan had time left in the game to do something. With that fumble and scoop and score, the Rough Riders were now down by 10 and the game was out of reach. Definitely a tactical error for Mario Alford. Time was already winding down when he received the kick. It was a situation where he should have just been going north-south and trying to get positive yards. Instead, he turned back towards his own end zone and got stripped. So it was an easy touchdown for the Toronto Argonauts. He ran probably, even if he had been tackled for a loss, he'd already ran about eight or nine seconds off the clock. And those were some valuable seconds that the Rough Riders needed to try to get down the field. It's kind of a fitting end to that game as there were mistakes all over. And, uh, you know, you, you end the game at that point with a, a big mistake as well. If you remember back earlier, we were talking about the booth with Montreal and Ottawa. Now, the booth came into the game with Saskatchewan and Toronto win. This happens in the second quarter with the Rough Riders down 11-3 at this moment. Charleston Hughes batted a ball forward to himself after a muffed snap that McLeod Bethel 
Thompson left on the ground. Hughes bats the ball. He gets a touchdown from it, and it looks like the Riders have really taken over. In But the play is reviewed, and it's called an offside pass. And let's just go to the rule book here because it's really important to know. An offside pass is a ball that is propelled from a player's body towards the opponent's dead ball line, regardless of how it was propelled, except by a kick or a punt. I was told by the officials at the time, after the review, that if he had kicked the ball forward, he could have recovered it. And that would be considered a dribbled ball. And we've done that discussion a while ago. But because he batted it forward, that is not allowed. And therefore, they had to bring the ball back to where he first made contact. It was still his possession. But the Rough Riders did not get a touchdown. And that turned out to be a huge point in the game. Hugh stated afterward that only in the CFL would this be the case. But this is sort of a case in point of how closely tied the Canadian Football League still is to its rugby roots. It's far closer to its origins than the other leagues, especially those in the States. Third down. Four games in the CFL this week, one per day from Thursday through Sunday. We start out east with the Montreal Alouettes in Hamilton to take on the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Of course, these two met in the East semifinal last year. It's their first meeting since. Tiger Cats at home, minus three favorites. Alouettes showed in Ottawa that they can put up points. It appears that Montreal's trending in the right direction to try to challenge Toronto for top spot in this East division. And I'm a bit surprised at how much of a favorite Hamilton is. We know they always get a little bit of a bump being the home team. But if I'm betting this one, I'm taking Montreal for the upset. I think we're in denial again about the Tiger Cats. They had a phenomenal home record when they moved to Tim Hortons Field. They have been to the last two Grey Cups, but this is, for whatever reason, not the same team. A team that many of us picked to finish first in the East really has disappointed, and I think a big part of that has been the turnovers and lack of ball control. If Hamilton can get that under control particularly with all the Eastern matchups coming up, they have a possibility to come through. In this game, I am going to take Hamilton. Uh, I, I see Montreal also working towards some turnovers. I think maybe they're getting better, but I think Hamilton still has a better team if they're able to get control of the ball. I like the Alouettes because they have the capability of putting up 30 to 40 points. I don't think Hamilton can match them. Hamilton's defense isn't as strong, although Simone Lawrence is back practicing. And if that is the case, then he's back on the field. That will definitely help their defense. I think the Alouettes are, are definitely the favorite in this game, even though the, the odds makers say Hamilton is. Let's move to Friday, and we've got the BC Lions in Regina to take on the Rough Riders. BC Lions are minus two favorites. That basically comes down to almost a pick em, a minus 1.5, we'll call it. Even if Fajardo plays, he's not able to run. So I just don't see Saskatchewan having the guns to go up against BC and what we've seen to this point in the season. Their defense certainly is strong, but their offense has just not been able to push the ball downfield. And Jason Moss, as you mentioned earlier, has been very reticent to push the ball. And BC has the potential to put up points as well. We've talked a bit about that offense and the weapons they have. Nathan Rourke, even in probably an off night last week, Still found a way to win. They moved the ball effectively. Lucky Whitehead had a big night again. Saskatchewan is 
in a little bit of trouble here. They've lost back-to-back to Toronto, and a team like the BC Lions coming in as your next test is going to be a pretty tough one. So I am also taking the BC Lions to uh, to win this one and probably cover the spread. Yeah, if Fajardo isn't able to go this week, I know he did practice today, but if he's not able to go today and it does come down to the pick'em, I think this really shows that the coaching staff maybe is not enamored with what Mason Fine had done. Last year, he spent most of the year as the third-string quarterback. He was elevated at the end of the year, but he doesn't seem to have shown the continued growth for the coaches to have confidence in him. Probably is one of the players that came off COVID protocol as well. So maybe that's factoring into a decision if he's not 100% healthy. I'm a little bit amazed that Cody Fajardo was even being considered, given how bad that knee is. This is the type of injury that if you don't pay attention to it, you may see him out for the rest of the season. And do you want to risk that if you're the Saskatchewan Rough Riders? Yes, it may mean that you're going to lose another game, but you have to take some small pain to get the long-term gain. Remember, this is the team that's hosting the Grey Cup, and there's massive expectation after two West Finals that they're going to break through and make it to the Grey Cup. The way it's going, that might be up the eastern side. Saturday, Winnipeg and Calgary, round two. Depending on who you look at, this is either Winnipeg favored by one or Calgary favored by one. This may change as the week goes on because of the COVID situation developing in Calgary. If enough key players are ineligible because of COVID protocol, the Stampeders I don't think could be favored anymore. This is a real tough one because if you look at Winnipeg's offense, they might be in a situation similar to Saskatchewan last week where you don't have any backup receivers. You've got Nick Dembski still out. O'Leary Orange replaced him. He's injured. Carlton Agadosi replaced him. He got rolled up on and is going to be gone for several weeks. We don't know the status of Greg Ellington at this point either. So that might be a depleted receiving core for Winnipeg. On the other side, if Calgary Stampeders players continue to miss practice because of illness, they might be a depleted team as well. Going into this before the COVID situation in Calgary was announced, in my mind, things were really trending towards Calgary winning this game. They're coming off a bye. Winnipeg has had a tough schedule so far. They're one of the last remaining teams that has yet to have a bye. Traditionally, Winnipeg doesn't fare well in Calgary. We'll have to kind of wait and see game time who's in the lineup for both teams to decide who's going to win this one. Excluding the playoffs of 2019, the Bombers haven't won in Calgary since 2017. Calgary's kind of Death Valley for Winnipeg under Mike O'Shea. Protocol, who's eligible, who's not, may really impact the Stampeders. Initially, I was going to go with Calgary because they're at home, but I want to wait and see. I just can't make an informed decision without knowing who is actually going to be on the depth chart. I know on July 15th when these two teams met, it was a dropped pass in the end zone that made a difference. Turned out as an interception, I guess, not dropped, but bumped into an interception. Made the difference for this game. I don't see Calgary winning this game, even though it is at home and they have some advantages. I think Winnipeg continues to do those little things that will help them win games. And I'm surprised that it's only one. I would put Winnipeg by about three as a favorite on this one. I'm going to go with Winnipeg, and, and I expect them to cover this spread. Sunday, Ottawa is in Toronto to take on the Argonauts. 
Toronto, of course, sitting on top of the East. The Red Blacks are, the Argonauts, I will say, are minus six favorite. That's a no-brainer. The Argonauts should be favored and will cover against Ottawa. If Ottawa can't determine that Caleb Evans is stout enough to be their quarterback going into Toronto, they've got bigger problems. The Argonauts have come off a couple of big back-to-back wins against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. McLeod Bethel-Thompson is looking comfortable out there as the starting quarterback for the Toronto Argonauts. Too many question marks for Ottawa, being that this game is in Toronto as well. I'm taking the Argonauts to win this one. I think Caleb Evans keeps it closer than the spread indicates though right now, so I'm going to take uh, take Toronto to win but not cover. Ottawa's offense has been putting up points this year. It's their defense that seems to be letting them down. And I think Toronto, having Andrew Harris get on his horse last week, has found a winning solution. And I think that they are absolutely going to cover this one and should win this easily. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.